0: From the University of California, Irvine, this is the UCI Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bell, and I'd like to welcome you to our very first episode. The goal of the podcast is to enlighten and entertain with news, information, and stories about students, faculty, and staff here at UCI. Each episode will offer informal yet informative conversations with the people who make UCI the unique and exciting institution it is. We'll delve into subjects from all of the university's schools, from physical sciences and engineering to the arts and social ecology. And we'll have frequent checkups with UCI Health. An institution with thousands of students and hundreds of faculty researchers, we have an unlimited number of stories to tell and perspectives to share. So, diving right in. In this inaugural episode of the UCI Podcast, we offer a conversation about potential solutions to problems with the temporomandibular joint, or jaw joint. Researchers in the Samueli School of Engineering recently had a paper published in the prestigious journal, Trends in Molecular Medicine. The study is a comprehensive look at TMJ defects and possible treatments. Our conversation is up next. Okay, we are here on the third floor of Engineering Hall on the UC Irvine campus, and we are here to talk to Kyriakos Athanasiu, who is a distinguished professor of biomedical engineering. Welcome to the podcast, first of all. And uh, in your paper, you say that uh, TMJ problems affect a huge number of people. How, how many people suffer from these problems?
1: Well, first of all, thank you very much for doing this and uh, for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about the the TMJ and uh, tissue engineering. Indeed, afflictions to the jaw joint, the TMJ, affect about a quarter of our population, but unfortunately a very small number of those afflicted with uh, TMD, Temporomandibular Joint Disorders, seek uh, medical or clinical assistance because simply put, there are not good solutions to uh, treating any defects or any problems related to the TMJ. So it's a huge problem, but unfortunately with very few
0: solutions. And you say in the paper that this affects women uh, on a
1: much uh, greater uh, scale than men. Is that correct? It is correct. Uh, there is something called the gender paradox uh, related to the TMJ. It turns out that about eight or nine women per one man suffer with uh, TMD, with these afflictions of the TMJ. So, so there is a huge, huge incidence of TMJ problems with uh, women, especially younger premenopausal women.
0: What are the symptoms of this? It's chronic pain, it's the difficulty in speaking and chewing, is that what I understand?
1: That's exactly correct. So, as one can imagine, the TMJ is such a central joint. In terms of quality of life, it is central to our chewing, to our talking, so many activities, daily activities. When TMD develops, when there is uh, pain, when there is affliction to the TMJ, the quality of life significantly suffers. So it starts with a lot of pain, it starts with clicking, it starts with, with uh, an inability to open the mouth, and then it progresses to even more, more uh, significantly uh, worse uh, conditions where the person essentially cannot speak, cannot chew. And as one can imagine, TMD does uh, not only does it to the, to the afflict uh, the jaw itself, it afflicts the whole body the whole quality of life.
0: Now, you've got a new paper here in uh, Trends in Molecular Medicine, in which you sort of talk about possible solutions to this uh, problem. Um, can you give us a kind of an outline of some of the things you suggest?
1: In this paper in uh, Trends in Molecular Medicine, we lay out the pot- a potential pathway for achieving good solutions to TMJ disorder. In order to achieve, in order to establish uh, approaches to treat the TMJ, one needs to understand the deficiencies related to that joint. And, and in that paper, we go about describing those. For instance, TMJ afflictions are not treated by orthopedic surgeons like all of the other joints that we have in, in our musculoskeletal system. So if we have a knee problem or a hip problem, we go to orthopedic surgeons or orthopedic surgery and orthopedics in general has had a lot of a lot of success and a lot of support in terms of research over the last maybe 50 or 60 years and in, in, uh, an enormous amount of funds and, and effort are allocated to treating orthopedic afflictions. In contrast, if we look at the TNJ, which is handled by um, by oral and maxillofacial surgeons and not by orthopedic surgeons, we see that there is a huge discrepancy in the amount of uh, funding that's available for research. There is a huge discrepancy in our understanding of fundamental characteristics between the TMJ and, say, the knee. As a result, uh, treatment modalities that emanate from basic information that we develop on each joint lack in the TMJ in comparison to the knee. Also, a, a huge difference between the two areas, the orthopedic area and the oral and maxillofacial area, lies in the fact that the regulatory bodies, the FDA, has never created guidance documents which basically guide products in the TMJ. They've done it multiple times and they do it all the time with regards to joints of the musculoskeletal system, the knee, the hip, the elbow, the ankle, but not the TMJ, they've never done that. Hmm. So right now, the understanding is that if one brings a product, potential product forward to treat TMJ afflictions, one might follow the documents, the guidance documents that are provided by the FDA with regards to the knee, for example. Okay. But it's a very different joint. How is it different? If you allow me... uh, let me describe to you a series of events that took place in the 80s related to the TMJ. At that time, uh, when all of these primarily women came forward with all of those issues that they had in the TMJ, a potential solution emerged and the solution said, well, how about if we go and we put in the ailing bones, between the two bones that are articulated in the jaw, how about if we put a spacer, like a disc, if you would, that would be made out of Teflon materials. It was the so-called proplast Teflon materials. The FDA at the time approved the use of Teflon as a spacer in the jaw joint. It turns out that that Teflon was an absolute catastrophe for all of those women. Because of the large mechanical forces that are generated in the jaw, the Teflon broke up into pieces. And because of the proximity of the TMJ to the brain, it turns out uh, those pieces somehow find their way into the brain,
0: and we all know from our Teflon frying pans—you're not supposed to eat those little flakes of Teflon that come up when that's, you're cooking, that, right? That's <laughs> exactly correct. It's very <clears throat> analogous
1: to the Teflon-coated uh, frying pans, mm-hmm. you know, and you see how those little pieces come off uh, when you use your fork to uh, turn your omelet, for example. <laughs> you should never do that. Right. Um, so, so something analogous uh, um, turns turns out. So
0: it's a dangerous material. It's an absolutely right. dangerous material.
1: Because of that, and the absolute disaster that ensued, uh, there has not been any other attempts to find any solutions to TMJ-disc related uh, problems. This leads us to a huge point that we're trying to make in that paper. And the, the point is this, when we're going to try to bring products to the market related to the TMJ, we got to be cognizant of the proximity of the TMJ to the brain. My knee is very far from my brain. Mm -hmm. My hip is very far from my brain. My TMJ is just a few millimeters away from the brain. So we don't really understand how those pieces, those materials that break off, would translate themselves through the the barrier that separates the, the body from the brain and get them to the brain, but it happens, and they do cross. How? We still don't know, but they do cross people found them in this uh, cerebrospinal fluid, for example. So, so it's absolutely fascinating that that happens. Mm-hmm. I cannot understand why that happens, but I can explain it in the sense that it is so close, the TMJ is so close to, to, to the brain. So if I have, if I put a, a prosthetic device in my hip, and I have that articulation of metal and plastic, and I get those wear, particles was W E A R those little pieces that break off. Mm-hmm. All those we know those accumulate around the hip. Well, it's it's not that it's a good thing, but it is not my brain. Mm. If those <laughs> things accumulate in my brain because they're very close to my brain, you know, if I put them in my T M J, well, that obviously is a catastrophic result. Thus, the moral of the story here is that the F D A has to have guidance documents that are specific to the TMJ, and that they are very different from the rest of the body because of the two things that I mentioned. The lack of knowledge that we have, fundamental knowledge on the TMJ, and more importantly, its proximity to the brain.
0: In your tissue engineering approach, is it possible to create a material that doesn't deteriorate or, or flake off or have you know little bits of it coming off and going around in the body?
1: Uh, well, so that's exactly what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is not to put any synthetic materials mm-hmm. in such a close proximity to the brain. Instead, what we're doing is the following. We try to take cells and build a biological new TMJ disc in the laboratory before putting it in. So the end product that we aspire to use for treating afflictions of TMJ discs is a tissue engineered product that is fully alive, biological, and mechanically comparable to the real thing. So even if it breaks down, it will be like any other biological body, Hmm. any other other biological component, without having those Pieces of foreign material entering the brain.
0: If it breaks down, will it grow back? Because it's kind of a biological uh, tissue, or or is that your hope? Absolutely, uh, that is our
1: hope. Our hope is, I mean, the reason why we have cells in 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 those tissues is because we want those cells to uh, respond. Number one, to make the tissue itself, right. and number two, to repair the tissue if there is a little bit of a damage. If it's if there is a little bit of a of an operation of wear problem, then, then the cells are supposed to respond and you know repair the defect. That's what we hope to be able to do.
0: Do these engineered tissues have the potential to be stronger than the natural disc uh, and maybe more durable, last longer than, than the disc that our body provides? For the most
1: part, the disc that the body provides is supposed to last without much of an issue for, you know, six, seven, eight decades of life. Mm-hmm. So, so if we can replace one that breaks down for whatever reason with another biological one of comparable properties, then we should gain another 60, 70, 80 years. So, so, so that should be That's sufficient. plenty of time. <laughs> that's okay. exactly right.
0: Now in this uh, Trends in Molecular Medicine paper, you talk, the issue, uh, the, the term scaffolding comes up. Could you describe what you mean by that term scaffold here? Sure.
1: One of the, I guess one of our main contributions to uh, biomedical knowledge has been the invention of a process that we call the self-assembling process. It is a process via which we can engineer, we can fabricate, we can make pieces of tissue without using scaffolds, by merely using cells and various factors that we expose the cells to. No scaffolds. What, what, what is a scaffold? Well, a scaffold, as the name implies, is a structure onto or into which I can attach my cells. Scaffolds are usually synthetic. they are various polymers, gels, hydrogels, etc. Thus, synthetic materials, foreign materials. So, we believe our philosophy for the past uh, at least uh, 15 years has been that those scaffolds Number one, interfere with the healing process of the cells. And number two, there's still foreign bodies that could potentially migrate and go to places where they're not supposed to go to. Thus, we shun the use of scaffolds. We avoid the use of scaffolds as much as we can. That's why we have the scaffold-free approach that I described, the self assembly process. Okay. Having said all of that, though, I the verdict is not completely in. I'm not going to say that scaffolds don't, don't work. I cannot, you know, with it. Struggle with a pen, just say that no scaffolds are going to work. Mm -hmm. Just in our hands, we believe that a scaffold-free approach is a better approach.
0: And so a lot of this, you know, deciding between a scaffold-free or a scaffold-based approach has to do with the ability for you to implement and test and and clinically prove your your approaches. What we're
1: saying in this paper is that uh, there has never been a successful in vivo study in animals that shows successful healing of the TMJ disc except for the study that we just performed in the mini pig the mini pig despite the name of mini that's that is considered to be a large animal so it is a large animal model that is actually the best model for many human afflictions including the TMJ so we demonstrated for the first time that we could take tissue engineered discs disks that we engineered from cells, brought them in the laboratory, and then put them in the ailing mini pig, the one that has the TMJ defect. And in eight weeks, we saw complete regeneration of the TMJ disk in comparison to the ones that were left untreated, which deteriorated completely, developing full osteoarthritis in the joint. So we were able to show that by using our tissue engineering approach in a large animal model, we could achieve exceptional healing. A couple of points that I would like to make about our approach. Our approach, there are two adjectives that I would use. One is that it's an orthotopic approach. The other one is a non-homologous use. And I will describe what I mean by You're that. You're going to have
0: to just define those two absolutely. Uh, terms, please. Yes, absolutely.
1: <laughs> orthotopic approach means that we put the TMJ disk in a TMJ disk environment. We put it in the right place. A lot of studies. There have been studies with the TMJ before, where people try to engineer discs and then put them in the back of mice. That's not an orthotopic approach. It has to go into the TMJ joint. So ours was an orthotopic. That's just
0: to see if it would be rejected by the correct. by the animal or not. Correct. Yeah. Correct.
1: So 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 we put it in the, directly in the orthotopic environment, which is a much more severe environment. You have all these stresses of the joint in there. And not only did it survive, it did exceptionally well. So one is orthotopic. The second thing that's very unique, a second adjective that I would use is that we had a non-homologous approach. That means that we did not take TMJ cells to fix a TMJ. We took rib cartilage cells to fix the TMJ. So we took cartilage cells from from rib cartilage, which is a non-articular cartilage, not a joint. Our you know mm-hmm. ribs are not joints, right? Mm-hmm. So we took pieces of cartilage from there. We took cells out of there. We grew those cells, and then we engineered our tissues. And then we took those tissue-engineered constructs and put them in another animal. So it's an allergenic approach. So we took the rib cartilage from rib A from uh, pig A one mm-hmm. those cells and put the tissue engineer construct in the TMJ of pig B. Mm-hmm. So in other words we have a orthotopic non homologous allogeneic use of tissue engineering. It mm-hmm. is a mouthful but you know it is as close to the real thing as as it gets.
0: And so that would be the pathway in the future to treating these sort of things. That is
1: correct. Um, so, so, so our study is very unique in the, in the sense that, that it shows that, that by using an allergenic source, the, the immune reaction is actually pretty benign. You know, mm. the, the body did not react to our tissue engineered construct. That bodes extremely well you know, for the future for developing these so-called allergenic approaches. One other point uh, uh, that I can uh, make is that uh, because of that study, I was uh, contacted uh, recently by uh, uh, by the FDA, asking me if I could if we could help them figure out how to go about uh, developing processes for bringing TMJ, you know, products to, to eventually to the market, and we'll be delighted to do that, you know, to to, to help uh, uh, create that. Uh, the pathway and this study really exemplifies the whole philosophy that we have behind potential TMJ products.
0: Well, uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add about this uh, this paper and uh, your general area of research in TMJ?
1: Well, th- this paper is very exciting for me because, first of all, it went to you know it got accepted by a very prestigious uh, forum, a very prestigious journal, in which we describe uh, I think in very simple terms as to what the approach ought to be to finally find a solution to uh, jaw joint problems. We describe what the differences are with other joints and, and why we have been thus far unable to find good solutions for the TMJ problem. And I think we establish a pathway which is pretty clear as to how one on a goal about figuring out solutions to this problem. So we're very excited about it.
0: Well, I thank you for sharing this with us today. And uh, again, we've been speaking with Professor Kiriakos Athanasiou and Distinguished Professor of Biomedical Engineering here at UCI. And uh, thank you again for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. You can read our press release about this research, which includes a link to the study, in the UCI newsroom, news.uci.edu. This concludes episode number one of the UCI podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening. In our next show, we'll talk with a UCI astronomer who took part in implementing a new telescope instrument to hunt for planets outside our solar system. And we'll share a conversation with an informatics professor who has written a book titled, Video Games Have Always Been Queer. This has been the UCI podcast. Production of UCI Strategic Communications and Public Affairs. I'm your host, Brian Bell. Thank you for listening.